morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the TT Podcast. Hell is not hot and fiery, it's cobbled, muddy, and finishes in a velodrome. Joining me to discuss a brutal, brutal Paris-Roubaix is my co-host Tom. Tom, how are you? Yeah, good evening everyone. It's evening for me at least anyway. I'm very well because I did actually for once spend the my Sunday afternoon in front of that Paris-Roubaix race. I have watched one of the races that we talk about for once. So uh, I'm, yeah, very excited to get stuck into it and actually give hopefully some much better thoughts and opinions than I normally do this time around. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I, I mean, watching it, it seemed to be as grueling for the viewer as it was, both races really, as they were for the riders themselves. Did you find it, it grueling, was... Tom? Were you, were you uh, a bit tired after watching it? Well, I was actually, and I know that you you weren't in front of it because I was flicking between Paris-Roubaix and the London Marathon, making me feel very inadequate as I'd got out for a, a short run in the morning, which I was feeling all right with, but nowhere near what either groups of people were doing in these two events. And I know you were on the streets at the marathon, so not yeah, running I, it, I should point out as well. I was on, uh, yeah, not running it. <laughs> I was on uh, supporter duties on Sunday, so I missed the men's Paris-Roubaix. Um, but, you know, I was keeping up with it on my phone, which uh, made for quite, you know, e- exciting viewing. Uh, if say, anything, uh, I, mean, I feel like it was a bit, all a bit out of context, though. It's hard. If you, if you hadn't sit, sat through that whole race and watched all of it, I feel like I didn't get the full experience, man. Honestly, it was... And I, I think I put a tweet out saying as much. It was just impossible to keep track of anything that was happening on the road at the time. You couldn't recognise anyone because they were all just this brown colour of mud anyway. And um, there's just everyone's, you know, going head over handlebars every five minutes. There's a hundred groups up and down the road. It was complete chaos for five hours. It was, and it was just unbelievable to watch. I think we saw it was the women's race, which wasn't obviously as wet or muddy as the men's race really foreshadowed just how messy it was going to be. Uh, let's start with that women's race then. Obviously won by Queen Lizzie Dignan. Incredible, incredible race. Went with 82 and a half kilometres to go and uh, stuck it all the way to the end. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> from the evidence we've seen afterwards, put you know every bit of blood, sweat and tears into that performance to get herself over the line. That looked absolutely brutal the whole way around. I'm sure it was the same for all of them, but she won, so she gets all the attention. I think the, the curious thing about Lizzie Dyden's attack was, obviously we've never had a women's Paris-Rubé before. We've been waiting 100 years for this. So we just had no real reference point as to how the race would be raced. Um, neither did Lizzie Dyden, obviously, and she thought, right, well, before we even hit the cobbles, I'll get myself on the front, get myself in a good position. I can pick my own line over them and uh, we'll see how it goes and just manage to stay away. It seems to be that they didn't, the, I guess the, maybe the pack didn't know how tough it would be to chase down on the cobbles or I'm not really sure what was going through their mind. that's it. You're probably right. You know, everyone's a bit apprehensive because it's the first time round and they don't really know what to expect. So why not just try and launch the big surprise and just go early and... Um... No one knows what they're going to do for tactics because they've never done it before. So just get yourself up the road and hope for the best. It's testament to her team as well. She obviously went up the road and then she had Elisa Longo-Borghini and Audrey Cordon-Rago just marking everything in the pack, looking at everything, making sure people weren't, you know, trying to swift one on them. And uh, in the end, I mean, Elisa Longo-Borghini came third and Cordon-Rago wasn't far after. So they uh, they played a blinder on their first ever Paris-Roubaix. 
yeah, got it pretty much spot on. Um, <laughs> you mentioned, obviously, about the blood, sweat and tears. We've seen pictures of Lizzie Dignan at the women's tour, which started on Monday of this week, uh, with her hands bandaged. I guess, the, I don't know what it's called. There must be a really scientific word for it, but the webbing between your thumb and your index finger, which she just completely wore through. Uh, Trek put a wonderful picture on their Instagram off the drops. I can see you wincing there, Tom. I'm grimacing at the thought of it. I've seen the pictures, and it's just. But when you talk about the webbing on your hands, just oh, it's a horrible thing to think about. Could you imagine if she, you know, just to celebrate, for example, she's like, oh, you know, why don't we go down to the chippy, get some chips, bit of salt and vinegar on them? Could you imagine plunging those hands into like a big punnet of chips, or whatever you'd call it? A punnet of (laughs) chips. <laughs> what would you call no, it? I don't know. I don't know. It's pun it for strawberries, not chips, definitely. But <laughs> the best thing is, if um, you just use fruit terminology for everything, it all seems healthy. Um, I, I want us as well to spare a thought here, um, both you, Tom, and the listener at home, to spare a thought for Cassia Nervia Doma, who crashed out after 30 kilometers and didn't get to ride the pave. Oh, that is gutting. I didn't know that had happened. <laughs> It's so sad. I mean, there was some, a lot of crashes. Ellen Van Dyke fell hard. Uh, Annemiek Van Vluten seems to have shattered her whole body. Uh, I think she was supposed to be at the women's tour. A couple of them have pulled out the women's sure. tour. She's she's used to that. She'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, that's it was just a really, really good race. And I, I guess it was... sets the bar high. Yeah, definitely. And there's no doubt they'll be back next year because I think the um, the viewing figures on um, on French television as well were for the women's race were comparable to the men's race in 2019, which was obviously the last edition won by Philippe Gilbert. And um, there's no doubt that, you know, the audience is there, the popularity, well, we've been saying this about women's cycling. Everyone who knows what they're talking about has been saying this about women's cycling for since women's cycling existed. People are interested and it is fascinating to watch. So it'll definitely be back. And it's obviously going to go down and, into sort of cycling folklore the same way the men's race does. Yeah, and you could see it as well on Audrey Cordon Rago's face. You were saying about how the French had big viewing figures. She Mm. was really, really psyched up for this one. I mean, she was the former French champion. Um, And at the end where she was crying, obviously not as much as Sonny Corbrelli was, and we'll get onto that. Um, But she was very emotional that, you know, that had happened. I mean, also they're amazing. And I don't mean this in a weird way, but the pictures of the female riders in the showers... Um, the famous Roubaix showers. Careful. Yeah, no, you know what I mean. Um, we're just phenomenal pictures. I mean, they again, they'll go down in folklore. They'll be historic pictures. Um, and now Lizzie Dygan, who curiously, uh, I was going to ask you this as a quiz question just now, but I think the way I phrased it makes it seem quite obvious. Uh, yeah. Who was the first Brit to win Ru- Paris Roubaix? Uh, oh, that is a good question. I guess it could be her. It is, in fact, is. Lizzie Dignan. Yeah. Um, yeah. I couldn't, because I think I'd know if Chris Boardman or someone had somehow got there. Uh, and obviously Tom Simpson's the one you'd think of, but I don't think he ever won it. Well, obviously he didn't. We know because you've just told me he didn't. But yeah, they'd be the other ones I would have said if, yeah, you, so had, it, if you had phrased the question in a less leading way. So yeah, she's, I mean, not only does she now hold the first ever winner of the women's edition of Paris-Roubaix, uh, she is also the first ever Brit to win the race. I mean, that's definitely something to shout about. I mean, we've not got a fantastic record in, in any of the classics, really, have we? Apart from maybe Thompson. I mean, I... I mean, Ian Stannard won Omelette Het Neusbad, but I don't think it has the prestige of Paris-Roubaix. 
No, and then obviously not British, but uh, Sean Kelly had a fantastic record in more or less every race he entered and is from close, but there's, you know, the Irish will obviously go mad if you try and claim him as some sort of joint British and Irish effort. So, and I'm not going to do that because I'm basically Irish myself anyway. So yeah, I don't think he'd appreciate it either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about the men's race then, Tom. You obviously, as you said, bedded in for that one on the Sunday. Talk me through how that race evolved. I, I've seen highlights, but I don't feel like I've got the the full experience of it. You're not doing me many favours here because I'm not sure I really can talk through it because it was just so all over the place. It was complete chaos for five out. There were camera bikes going over. Um, Luke Rowe doing an assassination job on Mads Pedersen was a particular highlight. But <laughs> Let's talk about the Luke Rowe thing. I didn't see what that was. Um, and I saw his Instagram story where he was like, he was quite, I don't really know. It was a really weird vibe that he had about him he was sat it was obviously very early in an airport and he sat there and he's like i've had a few messages about uh what i did with mads pedersen uh and if you sent me a message you know nothing about cycling um <laughs> and then he invited them all to go i'm not going to use the words but very aggressively you know yeah invited them outside to essentially yeah. he told them what <laughs> he told them where to go yeah. um and then, incidentally, Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp all crashed in the evening. So, you know, maybe his... Oh, so maybe it wasn't a coincidence. Well, I don't know. Maybe Luke Rowe had just got really angry and just crashed all the servers. But that one, well, he just seemed to come back into the race in the middle of the Arenberg from, from the sidelines, having, I assume... I, I don't know if he went over himself or if he just lost his chain or something, because I wasn't really watching that clip. I mean, again, you know, when you just get a helicopter shot of the Arenberg, you've got no idea where to look, have you? Because there's people binning it absolutely everywhere all the time. Uh, so I, I you heard were, it was you a... were talking about earlier in the week, just how terrifying a stretch of, uh, of well, not road, pave that is. So I, I heard with the Luke Rowe thing, it was a front wheel puncture, mm-hmm. um, which basically means you just have no steering. But it seems to be that he comes from the side, a standing position, and then just swings it into the middle of the road where Mads Pedersen... I'm like, <laughs> just, just maybe your shoulder. <laughs> like, it's just like etiquette, isn't it? Look at... But maybe, look, I don't know. What do I know? And if Luke Rowe hears this, then I really don't want him to call me outside because I have no doubts that he could cave my head in. And then I was just going to say that it was very heartwarming because I don't think I've ever seen a spectacle like this before. But the entire world of cycling, Twitter, Insta, social media, cycling fandom all over united against one man hoping he doesn't win was just a delight to see and then when the cycling gods did rain down on him as well and take the race away from him it was just beautiful um you are of course talking about gianni moscon um (laughs) if you're not familiar with gianni moscon uh, and his antics antics isn't the right word his uh quite his 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 racism over and unrepentant unrepentant racism um The only thing that's really come out of it is that his team has been like, oh, well, you know, we'll tell him not to. He got a um, si- I thought Ineos or Sky at the time gave him a six-week ban or something for an instant with with Kevin Retzer, which in itself is probably not enough. I thought they'd sent him on some awareness course as well, which clearly had no effect. Um, and he just seems to have this uncontrollable temper because, as I just said, he's been caught, you know, chucking bikes at people and punching other riders. And this, yeah, we didn't want him winning this race. <laughs> 
Yeah, I've just looked up. So Moscon, um, it was 2017, tour of Romandy, um, racially abused Kevin Retzer, uh, was dealt a six-week ban by his team and instructed to complete a diversity awareness course. Not even fined? Not no fines. But, um, no, I mean, I it's even, taken a UAF, massive UAF toll. UEFA have got a better track record than that then. It's taken a massive toll on his, uh, his reputation in the peloton. And uh, yeah, there's, as you say, there's nothing really that can unite people than uh, Gianni Moscon off the front and, and it was calling just, for it to be pulled back in. For 10 minutes, everyone saying those prayers and they were answered with the most timely puncture anyone's ever seen. Just the sight of that flat back wheel, absolutely brilliant. And then to compound that, he gets on a new bike that obviously hasn't been used for the whole race and the tyres are at 100,000 PSI or whatever. <laughs> And as soon as he got into the cobbles, he just binned it straight off again as well because he was bouncing all over the place. It was oh, just it was one the of the most many. fortunate series of events you've ever seen. <laughs> there were some real. I've watched that kind of like show reel of the falls, and there were some really, really lame falls in it. Uh, there was one where Fred Wright binned it on the Arenberg, and it's just like it just seems to be a matter of you know, when, if you're trying to clip out your pedals and you can't clip out, and then you just kind of topple to the side. It was <laughs> yeah, one of those. I've done that before. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, come on, man. I actually, I, I wanted, because I've never really properly ridden cobbles. So to kind of get a taste of it, um, I decided that I would make a route of 50 kilometers around the entirety of the center of London and incorporate as many cobbles as I could. So if anyone's familiar with London, that was like Covent Garden, Wapping, um, Shad Thames near Waterloo, back round through Marlebone. Um, very busy streets, very touristy streets. So I didn't really get much. Uh, people weren't really getting out my way for it. You uh, found enough time to uh, pick up a couple of punctures yourself, though, didn't you? Oh, I had two punctures. It was a nightmare. Uh, but then I feel, you know, now I feel like I've I've had the full immersion in the pave experience. But um, even just that loop, I mean, they did the men did almost two hundred and sixty kilometers. My fifty k loop, and my arms were chattering throughout. I probably only did about ten kilometers of punctures. Uh, um, off pave but then again it was actually probably like five kilometers uh and for 48 hours afterwards my arms were aching so much so i cannot begin to imagine what pain they are in right now still yeah i wouldn't fancy it, it was going back to yeah lizzie dyden's hands you just see the the tape on the handlebars covered in blood and i haven't seen anything like that coming from the men's race i don't know if they were aware of it after seeing the women's race and maybe took some preventative measures but you would have thought the women would know about that as well because I, I know lizzie died and said that basically in that weather with that rain and those conditions gloves or no gloves your hands are probably going to get cut up and without gloves she reckons she has a better feel for the bike on the pave so she went without yeah and i think the, the argument for gloves is that you know they're going to protect your hands but then when you're on the pave and your hands are moving around so much and the material kind of bunches up in the mitts, mm. then that just rubs itself and you get... For 260k. Yeah, more blisters. So I'm, I'm not really sure. I, it's probably just a matter of, you know, you're going to accept that your hands are going to be destroyed. I mean, I've seen pictures of riders in Paris-Ribé that have just lost the entire layer of skin off their palms. What we did see instead, once uh, Moscon was dealt some divine punishment... A group of three made it made it to the velodrome, featuring, of course, Mathieu van der Poel. Uh, but he didn't win. Yeah, I was going to ask you this, Tom. You you obviously do a lot of van der Poel praising on here. What went wrong yeah. for Mathieu in uh, at Paris-Roubaix? He came third in a three-up sprint. 
Um, I think he just did too much riding. I think he dragged the other two to the uh, into the velodrome. Um, was obviously behind the front group for a while. Had to bridge a couple of gaps himself. And he does just seem to always, you know, he does take it into his own hands. He doesn't bother. He doesn't let other people do the riding. He just thinks, right, if I need to cross this gap, I'll do it myself. And at the sharp end of races, that does cost him. We've seen it before. But then, what's the argument? So, I mean, there's been the argument that you know, Colbrelli not really sure about him because he hasn't done any work on the front but is that maybe just smart racing i think that's just smart racing isn't it why would you take on the pole to the line yeah um i don't think you're obligated to do any pulling well ever i mean yeah you might sacrifice your and a few other guys chances but it all comes down to tactics and like if you win the race you can't really say you've done anything wrong can you Mm. Um, I thought it was interesting. I did see some clips of Van der Poel racing and he raced very, very aggressively. I think it was just the fact that the conditions reminded him of cyclocross. So he rode a one hour cyclocross race, you know, that same intensity he would have over six hours. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest about halfway through, I was there going, I have no idea what's happening here. And yet whenever you looked at the groups on the road and who was where, up front was Mathieu van der Poel and Wout van Aert. And I just thought, well, how is it going to happen that through all of this, everything that's happening, those two are still going to be the two who go to the line together. And as it turns out, Wout was, I don't know, just got out of position a couple of times and then stuck in some traffic on the pave and just got distance without without really riding any slower. He just sort of found himself a minute behind. So I think this is the nature of Paris-Roubaix and we saw it in the women's race as well, where because it's so chaotic and it's so, you know, everything is everywhere and there's mm. motorbikes struggling to stay on the road. The cars can't stay on the road. There's punctures, there's mechanics all over the road. Um, it's very easy, I think, to just miss the winning move and something that seems quite inconspicuous, like, you know, Florian Vermeesh going up the road and he ends up sticking it up there till the end. It's just like, and same when, when, when Vanderpoel kind of pulled away around the Arenberg time, I think it was. And- he pulled away on every, every single time there was a corner. He found 20 meters and everyone else. His bike handling skills were abs- and just the way he rides around the bends were absolutely incredible. But uh, you know what? It started, I think I think Van Aert might be suffering some from some sort of fatigue or more mental fatigue, I think, because I think he is struggling to spot on the road when the winning move goes. Whereas at, at the tour, he wouldn't have missed that. But now, he I mean, he, had- he missed it at the, at the World Championships. He missed it again at Paris-Roubaix. I think he's just ready for his holidays now. He's had a very long season and he's been at the front end of just about every race he's been in for, what, nine months now? Yeah. But, I mean, you're right. That is the nature of Paris-Roubaix because there have been some quite rogue winners over the years. They had Magnus Backstedt on commentary who, to be honest, I'm not that familiar with him, but there he is. Swedish rider, won Paris-Roubaix in 2004. Matthew Heyman's the other one I quite often think of, who won in, think, in 2016. It was the only race he won in his career. Um, but if you just get yourself in the right move and you're lucky on the day, all of a sudden you can... Be, I mean, Heyman, I think, rode Paris-Roubaix about 15 times. So, he, you know, the, he did increase his odds a bit. But um, it's straight. I, I don't know, because there's probably an argument going the other way that says, you know, Tom Bernan and Fabian Cancellara and whoever else have won it X amount of times each and they were the favourites going into it. So I don't know. Sometimes it can just spring a big surprise and Florian Vermeesh came very close to pulling that off. I know. Um, spare a thought as well. You know how we spared a thought for Cassianivia Doma. Uh, spare a thought as well for Gianni Vermeesh, who I think came 15th overall, 
was not the first Gianni over the line, nor was he the first Vermeesh over the line, nor was he the first Alperson rider over the line. Uh, completely forgotten then. <laughs> yeah, you know, might as well have not even bothered. He's come, he's managed to finish the race inside the time cut. And uh, sadly, all of his uh, slots have been taken. Um, Sonny Cobrelli, you were talking about surprise winners. His odds were quite short at the start of the race. Would you have had him as a surprise winner? Were you expecting him to do something big? You know, any other year, yeah, probably. But he is in the form of his life at the moment. Um, ever since I said he had a stupid name on one of our episodes a few few weeks ago when I said Sonny doesn't really sound Italian, uh, he was clearly listening and he's clearly taken that to heart and since then won the uh, Italian National Championships, the European Championships and Paris-Roubaix. And you could tell he was unbelievable. He was, he was actually, I was going to say very passionate. He was just quite Italian at the end after he'd won it. Yeah, but as I say, apparently he was wearing the European champions jersey, but there's no way you could <laughs> see that because it was just his entire face covered in mud, beard falling off. It was not not a good look, but uh, I think it just makes it all the worthwhile to win. To win in those conditions probably is more special than to win in, in a normal. I mean, it's obviously it's a horrible race most years, but every 20 years you get one like this and that must feel a bit extra special. I was, you know, I was glad that, um, I say this, I wasn't really, um, that I wasn't on media duties at Paris-Roubaix, um, because imagine trying to like hail down the riders in the press zone afterwards. Where they difficult can, enough to recognise anyway. You can't even recognise them and they can barely <laughs> see past their own eyelids. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you'd be, I think you'd do well if you were, if you were a media, if you were a media and you were trying to get interviews and you just held out a wet sponge to them, then they'd definitely stop in front of you. And I mean, those, I mean, even see... even those you do recognise just can't, you know, Cobrelli and Vanderpool were both just pictures on the floor in absolute pieces as soon as they got over the line. So <laughs> they couldn't move their mouths because they were so cold <laughs> and their eyes were just completely bloodshot. It's like it's terrifying. Dead man stare like they'd been in the trenches. They had in the well, Arabic oh, same, same region, northern France. They probably did go past a few. Actually... The race did start in Compiègne, which is where the armistice was signed in 1918. So there's a little fact for you. The you forest or forêt uh, du, du Compiègne, I assume it's called, is where um, they signed the, uh, they uh, you know, at the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month uh, in 1918, they signed, I think they signed it there. Maybe they signed, no, because the Treaty of Versailles, I assume, was signed in Versailles. But then in 1940, when the Germans came back to France, Hitler made them sign the new armistice there as well to prove a point. So a bit of history. Yeah, look, I don't know if people come to this podcast for history, but um, there they go. I'm not going to fact check any of that. Yeah, um, it is true, but I didn't, don't, didn't, wasn't expecting to mention Hitler in this uh, podcast, but there you go. Yeah, I'm going to invite you all to do your own. Well, you went quite in on Johnny Moscon, so I thought we were going to get far <laughs> off. Um, I invite you all to do your own fact-checking on what Tom's just said there, because uh, I'm not sure I'm convinced by it. It was interesting, though, wasn't it? Oh, certainly interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll stand by that. They signed, um, it in a, they signed it in a railway carriage. Okay, right. You're just adding things now. I'm not sure about <laughs> these. You need to take yourself back to GCSE history. I could do, actually. I, this is embarrassing, actually, because I did once do a job uh, for three months working as a tour guide in the battlefields in northern France. So it really should be me that knows that, but I had no idea. I've actually never been to the French. Uh, I've never been to Arras or the Somme or wherever, but I did cycle with my dad around the uh, war graves in Belgium in Flanders before. So I, I, 
a nice joyous, well, I'll, a joyous I'll ride. That I'll one, bring I it, I'll bring it back up in the spring when we got the Belgian classics. <laughs> um, races we have on at the moment, we've got Il Lombardia this weekend, a one that you hold quite close to your heart, Tom. I do, um, just because it's Italian, really, and I think I really like it just because it is. It's the only, you know, it's the only autumn monument. Uh, well, here we are talking about Paris Roubaix uh, that happened three days ago in the autumn. That's not our regular schedule. Um, so I just think Lombardia is a really nice way to bookend the season because it normally, yeah, falls like this after the World Championships as well. And it is just in a stunning region. What used to be, they're finished, they've changed the route and they're finishing in Bergamo this year, which normally they finish on Lake Como, which is, you know, just like straight out of Bond films and whatever else. It's the most stunning place in the world. Uh, but this year they're starting in Como and finishing in Bergamo, which is an industrial town about 45 minutes northeast of Milan. And there's not much, there's an there's an airport that I fly to when I, and Atalanta are from there. That's all I really know was, about was Bergamo. Was Bergamo the place that got devastated by COVID right at the start? <laughs> yes, actually it was. Also infamous for that, yeah. Yeah. That's all not the great representation, not the uh, not the greatest reputation there. Um, I no, also... Atalanta do play the best football in Europe, though. So to just think about them instead. Um, I also will be back roadside this week at the women's tour, um, hoping to speak to Lizzie Dignan above all, really, about the uh, Paris Roubaix win, how she's getting on. I think she was the last winner of the women's tour as well. So she check is on, check on her hands. Yeah, just make sure she's doing all right. Bring us some uh, Nivea moisturizer or something. But yeah, I mean, it's a star-studded lineup. We've got Elisa Balsamo there in the rainbow jersey. We've had um, Bastianelli win stage one. Uh, Amy Peters won stage two. Uh, so yeah, it's really hotting up. I will be in Clacton-on-Sea on Friday, absorbing as much bike racing as I can at the moment before the uh, the winter comes and takes them all off the roads. Again, you, you know my fact about Clacton-on-Sea as well. What's that? That they had a UKIP MP. all all i know about the place (laughs) right wonderful tom well i'll keep an eye out for that one uh there's been a lot of far right commentary on this on this uh on this podcast which i wasn't it's not far right commentary (laughs) (laughs) okay right i've tried to be nice this week because i spent all the last week saying how much i don't like the french which isn't really true but you know there's always always any excuse to have a dig at them and now you're calling me a member of the far right no no i agree you you're <laughs> the narrative you're pushing here is that you don't like racists which i mean i can certainly get behind uh the anti-french stuff not so much uh tom give us the socials oh this is the most difficult bit uh it <laughs> so it is ttpdcst which is tt podcast with no vowels and that is on twitter and instagram yeah nailed it nice <laughs> bit one. of a pause there um cool well we'll be back next week with our kind of rundown of the women's tour tales from the women's tour whatever i can get you know on the road whoever i can speak with uh you know well we'll see we'll see how that one goes um but until then take care and uh thank you very much for listening thanks everyone